You're listening to Halloween Unleashed. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the season finale of Halloween Unleashed slash The Cutting Room Floor for 2019. Uh, reunited once again, I am with Chris Morgan. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing okay, man. How, how's everything with you? Man, I can't complain. It's uh, been a minute since we did one of these together, so hopefully uh, we don't shit the bed on this. Well, if so, I mean, I have some Depends pads down. I think we'll be just fine. <laughs> All right, so we uh, asked the fans to submit some questions to the show. Um, didn't really give any any uh, guidelines for such, and boy, oh boy, did they send the questions. And that's something that I'm I'm really excited about. I, I you know I've mentioned many times. You and I have talked off air many times that um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and there's a couple in particular that I listen to, and just listen to. Two back-to-back uh, in the last two weeks, uh, one with something to wrestle Bruce Pritchard and where they didn't ask Bruce anything, and then the other one was 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and uh, ask Eric anything. And to be honest with you, I feel that those are some of the best episodes because you're getting other people that have these questions that they normally don't get to ask, and depending upon whatever subject we're covering here, we may not ever get to those questions that people ask. And I just think that that is extremely entertaining because you're getting to hear from other people that, uh, that listen to your show that have all these questions and they're able to interact. And I just think it's more interactive that way. I agree completely. And, you know, and they, and they vary. It's not all mass questions. It's not all movie questions. Um, they even get into your, uh, your fan films a little bit. So I'm excited to cover these. Yeah, I don't think I've really ever talked much about the fan films uh, and pre. I mean, I could be wrong. I I seem to remember Kevin and I at one point on the HMMAT podcast talking about it, but it, I don't think that we've ever really and truly covered them. If if that makes sense. Yeah, they've been mentioned in passing here and there, but I know uh, you never really dove deep into it. Maybe that we can give those its own episode in the future, but. Um... Especially given there's two of them, so that'd be an exciting thing to do. Perfect. All right, so first question comes from Alexander Wilkins, and he wants to know, and I think this is a pretty good question, he asks what the overall consensus of, of the DIY in the SS-78 is and which one is photographed better. And this is a very subjective question. Now, of course, you know, the SS-78 uh, is, a, is a retool of the DIY, so they're, they're not you know drastically different. And I think... They're done differently, and I've seen you do a DIY in an SS-78. Of course, Rick does mostly DIYs. I'm sure if he hasn't, he'll do an SS-78. He has. Um, oh, yeah. No, he did one H2, didn't he? No, uh, Matt Reed did that one, uh, but, oh, yeah. uh, and he sent that to Rick as a, as a gift, and uh, Rick did, a, did an SS-78. I don't – I'm pretty sure he sent it to Matt, and I think they just did a swap because – I sent both of them blanks um, and because Matt's hooked me up with a ton of stuff uh, blank wise. He sent things. 
I didn't even know he was sending and he didn't have to. And Rick's done the same thing. And, you know, I was like, well, it's my turn to kind of pay it forward and, and do the same thing. And that's what I did as like, I wanted to give them an opportunity. And I thought that they were going to go out and maybe try to recoup some money that they've, uh, spent on sending me things. And that just speaks to the type of character that they both have is they both just wanted to hook each other up and help each other out. And I just thought that was really cool to see. Oh no, absolutely. And they both did a killer job on it. And as far as, you know, the consensus other than the people who are still touting that you recasted it, which is bullshit, but I think it it all comes down to, to how it's photographed. I've seen copies of the SS 78 in particular, the one you did for Hunter hood. He's been taking some fantastic shots of that one. And it looks amazing, and I've seen I, – I recently had a DIY in my possession for about a week that was amazing. So I think it's going to come down to the person because you and Rick, while very similar, do have different finishing styles. And you know, there's clean versus dirty, you know, different sizes, how it's worn, how it's shot. So it's, it's subjective for sure, but how would you see the reactions been since the SS-78 was released? Um, it, it, it is very subjective, and – Anything I say positive or negative about either one, um, I don't want it to come off wrong. Because um, sometimes people hear something or a clip of what you say, and they make up their own narrative. And that happens more times than not. So I want to be really, really careful of how I answer this. But um, the consensus on the SS-78, according to my inbox, if that's any indication in my message requests and my messages on uh, Instagram, to be honest with you, I, I could be busy for the next two years if I wanted to be. Um, that's even people that at one point in time or another that either has talked shit on me <laughs> or has been a critic of mine in the past or has bought into what people have said about me has either unblocked me or messaged me trying to kind of patch things up and start over, if you will. And, you know, I, I look at things like this, as long as you haven't done anything too far over the line, uh, you know, communication is 99.9% of every problem or every resolution to a problem. And just like what I'm struggling with in my, in my, in my marketing business now a lot of this is like dating and I don't mean that I'm dating customers, you know, but you know, a lot of it's like dating is, you know, if, if you're open to having a conversation and having an open mind, and this is the same with sales, you know, the sky's the limit. And a lot of times people get so jaded or so subjective in their thoughts or thinking or their, or the narrative of a certain artist person or a sculpt or whatever, that it it does cloud their judgment and they tend to follow the flock um, and joining in on whatever narrative is out there. Uh, The narrative right now about the SS-78, despite MMNet's best attempts to discredit it, the narrative is that it's, it's hero all day long. And some people say, I see the DIY in it, and others say, I don't see any of the DIY in it. And um, I think that's both, you know, again, that's subjective. You know, I can't tell you what your eyes see versus what mine see. Um, 
you know, we're just going to have different opinions and that's, and that's okay. But the general consensus, I guess, to, instead of going off way off in the woods is the general consensus of the SS 78 has been a very positive one. I think the, the only issue is that, that you and Rick, you know, do this on the side and people can't get them faster. And, and, and whether you pick a DIY or an SS 78 and have either of the one of you finish it, you're going to end up with a quality mask nonetheless. Yeah, and that's a, that's another thing too. Is that's uh, to to be honest, to answer this straight up, is I have no desire to to do it more than I'm doing it currently. Um, it's not to say that I don't enjoy it when I get the opportunity to. Um, the The biggest thing is is um, every person's life has seasons, and my season of life, I went through many different seasons. And one of them just happened to be, uh, you know, masks and uh, good, bad or indifferent. And we're going to focus on the positive is it everything I've ever been through in each season has led me to the next step of where I'm supposed to be going or a direction I'm going next, whether that is positive or negative. And I, I look at that as no different. And to, to be honest, um, if you go back well, let's just go back six years. My last full year of doing masks full-time for a living versus what you're seeing out of me now. Yeah, part of that, that's six years of difference. Someone can really evolve as an artist or as, you know, whatever medium you're in. If you're, if you're a storyteller, you can evolve as a storyteller or a writer or, you know, a Photoshop person, whatever the case is that, that you do. Janitor, gym manager, whatever. It could be anything. Um, I think with time you evolve and grow, at least you should, you never should go into anything, no matter how long you've been in it and think that you're the, the, the best get complacent or think that you have, that you've learned everything. I mean, still, this is my going on my 11th year of doing anything with it. I learn stuff new every time I do something new. And that's, that's good. You know, that means that I'm not dead yet. So as long as I am, I'm breathing and my heart is beating, um, I'm always hoping I'm going to be learning something. Otherwise there's no point of even doing it. So, um, point is, is I've had that season in my life. Um, I do enjoy it, but knowledge that I've learned along the way or not, if you compare just from a quality versus quantity perspective, take out everything else. Cause there's a lot of people that, that will say, I prefer his old stuff. There's a lot of people that say, I like the way he's doing stuff now. And again, that's subjective. The whole, the whole moral of this entire thing is everything is subjective when it comes to this stuff. But if you look at what I was doing full time before, where maybe I would put out a dozen H ones in a month, Versus now, I may do a dozen H1s in 18 months, you know, and if you look at it at the quality versus quantity, the quality has definitely gotten better because I'm spending a lot more time and I'm not just steamrolling production lining through any anything. I'm doing each individual thing and giving it my all because you know what, maybe I don't do another mask. You know, I, I want every piece that comes out of here to be something like, hey, if that's the last thing I ever send out, I want that I want that to be the last impression that people have is 
that was that was perfect or that was as near perfect as you could get does that does that all make sense oh of course and like uh our our favorite buddy jim Cornette says for the people for the people who like that kind of thing that's the kind of thing those people like right exactly all righty so um let's see I guess I, I guess the other part of the thing is that we didn't answer is you know I guess he wants to know what my opinion is on the DIY versus SS seventy eight is is that is that kind of what he was saying? Yeah, I think that's what he was going for. I, maybe if you know, and I, I, you're a little biased on this as you make the SS seventy eight, but I guess which one you prefer, and, and if one's better than the other in any specific areas. Well, I mean, they're both, you know, one A one B. Um, to be honest, but. Neither one of them are without their flaws. I mean, every every replica that is out there, um, you know, is going to have its flaws no matter what it is. Um, when it comes to which one I, I choose, you know, personally, I, I, I was kind of 50-50 um, for the longest time. Um, the stuff that Hunter Hood has put out picture-wise of it has really taken something that I felt very confident about when it was in clay and even some of the pictures I was taking. But he's really taken it to a whole different level to the point where I can look at that thing and see a lot of scenes from the movie. And before that, um, I was saying the same thing about his ghost or I would say the same thing about a DIY or I would say you know, name any mask and I'm saying, you know, if it's, if it's photographed the right way and the flash isn't on two feet away from the mask, it's exposed correctly. Um, it's stuffed correctly. A a lot of that stuff plays a big role in it. But when I look at the two, first of all, I would not have made the SS 78 if I thought that the DIY had absolutely zero flaws that I could, that I could improve upon. I get asked a lot, well, what did you improve? Because I can't, I can't see. Um, off the V-brow into the bridge of the nose, um, top of the nose, right by the eyes, is I recess that indentation backwards, whereas the DIY, it's more of a straight down, no indentation. Kind of like to represent what the life cast kind of looks like because it really shoots backwards into the head a little bit. It's recessed. So I did that. Um, I improved the overall shape of it because I did feel that the DIY at times, and this is not anything that anybody would notice. If you have a DIY and you're you're thinking that I'm shitting on it, I co-produce it with Rick. So I'm not shitting on my own product. In fact, I tell people all the time, make up your own mind, whatever looks best for you. But since the question was asked and what my reasons are, I'm giving them, um, so please don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, but the DIY shape-wise around the neck, I wanted to improve that a little bit. Um, I wanted to flare out the ears a little bit away from the from the sculpt because I felt like when you're looking at it head-on, the ears kind of disappear a little bit. Um, and again, that's not a knock or a negative. That was just something I saw that, hey, if I could just do this, and since I knew that I could, I did it. So... Um, the other thing is, is I improved a lot of the definition in the cheeks, which was already pretty detailed as it was, but I added more, you know, because, uh, the one thing when I was working with the classic 75 that I really liked, uh, was, was the really defined cheeks and everything. And it really made 
the shadows pop and it made that sculpt really take on take on the shape if if you will so a lot of things i did out of personal um tastes but uh it translated over extremely well something i'm very proud of but as far as which one's better which one's better and photograph wise i i'll be honest i posted that large diy and the ss78 the same day one was for andrew peters one was for hunter hood and to be honest with you, I couldn't choose which one was better because they both looked pretty equal in, in my eyes. So it's really all what it comes down to in personal pr- preference and subjection. Absolutely. Uh, ben Brooks asks, um, and he doesn't remember if this has been answered or not, but what was the first Myers mask that I, I think the way he worded is, is the first one that you had? And what was the first one that you got that you thought was perfection at the time so i guess your first one and your first great one um my first mold that i bought was uh the untamed h6 from bill miller or william j miller at night stalker productions um you know ever as everybody knows h6 is my favorite mask my favorite sequel mask and i love to do them up and I had just um, finished H3O, which we we will talk about. Um, I had just finished H3O, and I had just touched up that uh, thorned um, mask that was used in the film. Um, kind of got bit by the bug by just kind of you know reweathering that, um, and I decided I wanted to do more. And if I could ever find a mold that would come available that I like. Um, I would jump all over it. So when that happened, uh, Bill had posted it up for sale. I can't remember exactly where he posted it. I think it was on Gary Monger's H3O Productions old message board. And when he posted it up, I I jumped all over it. So that was the first mold that, that I had. I didn't know anything about casting. I didn't know anything about what I needed to do. I, I had no clue. I mean, so I had to learn a lot of stuff. Um, but the the real first H one that I had was the was the he mask from Steve Wing, which there was a whole episode in our archives about it. Uh, the first good one I think that kind of made my career that allowed me to make the jump to a more full time converter was the Night Stalker that I got in two thousand and ten from MMP. All right. Um, on on the note of H six, Ryan Vermillion asks. Um, the other day you talked about how. Paul Rudd didn't have fun on the set of H6 and why he would never return to the franchise other than, of course, being paid millions of dollars to do other things. But what happened on the set of H6 that kind of soured him, if anything? Um, first and foremost, um, you know, there's been a lot of and, – and again, I don't – Paul Rudd's never been – openly saying, hey, I was treated poorly, but just some of the interviews that he's done where – like in the past, shortly after the film came out or, or whatever, he was spending more time advertising Clueless than he was advertising H6. And then when somebody would ask him about H6, you you could watch him grimace and like, uh, and he would sort of make fun of the experience. And so it tells me that there's a lot of animosity there. And I do know for a fact that he's been very open that he was extremely pissed off when they came back to do um, to redo the last half of the movie. 
Um, I, that part I do know. So I think a lot of it goes down to, you know, from everything that we've read, viewed or listened to in, inter- in various interviews over the years on various DVDs and box sets that's come out. Anytime you get to H6, everybody talks about what a clusterfuck the behind-the-scenes production part of it was. It was like the WCW of movie making, uh, where it was just the inmates ran, ran the asylum. Nobody knew what was going on from one day to the next. Joe Chappelle, the director, rubbed a lot of the cast the wrong way. He overshot scenes that didn't need to be that didn't need 35 takes, you know, for like a breakfast scene, for, for example. Um, he was kind of a tyrant on set and uh, a lot of the cast weren't treated the best as far as that is concerning. So I think a lot of it was frustration, um, the, the, the chaos and the, just the crazy shit that went on behind the scenes that has been well documented. And, he reluctantly came back to do the reshoots. He knew he was contracted to do it, but he didn't realize they were going to shoot reshoot the last half of the movie. So he wasn't happy about that because he had to put, he, I think he put um, another project on hold that ended up losing out. Now, which one that is, I don't know. I've only heard that secondhand information. So I don't, I don't, I obviously I'm not good friends with Paul Rudd. I can't just call him up and ask him, you know, so I don't know what the what the consensus was on on that but i do know that uh according to various reports that i've heard is that he did miss out on a pretty big movie project because of the reshoots that he was contracted to with h6 and he vowed that he would never ever come back to the franchise well that sucks because i honestly preferred him a lot in those movies i thought he did a pretty good job in h6 he did, and if if anybody is a fan of him that likes kind of like the role he played in H six, I welcome anybody to that has Netflix streaming to watch his new show that he came out with, and um, he he's amazing in that. I I just we just binge binge watch that. There's eight eight episodes. Just finished the first season. Um, I think there's going to be a season two. I'm not real sure. But it's called uh, Living With Yourself. So if anybody is a Paul Rudd fan that likes to see him kind of in that quirky, off-the-beaten-path kind of psychedelic role, go watch that, you know, and look that up. Because I sat, first episode, I didn't know what to expect. By episode two, I'm like, holy shit, this is, this is pretty amazing. And if you want to see a really good Paul Rudd interview, he just did one for the YouTube show Hot Ones. Some of the most entertaining stuff you'll see, so go check that out. Absolutely, and he was also good in um, Between Two Ferns with um, Zach Galifianakis, where, you know, that was just, it was a fucking stupid movie, but the stupidity of it was hilarious, so I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. He can be really funny, just as much as he can be serious. Yeah. Um, Mike Lampkin asks, and I think... I know the answer to this. He said, what was, uh, who, and who made, and what was the first independent Myers mask? And, um, and then he asked how you got into mask painting and repaints. Um, the first independent Myers mask. I mean, it's again, the internet back then wasn't what it is now. So a lot of, a lot of the information is who you believe and who, you know, it's just a it's just a foggy story, but there's some that believe 
that Sam McCain was the first one to do it because he says, hey, I made the first uh, Michael Myers mask ever in 1981, which technically that would make him the first one to make it. But I don't know if that was on a mass produced level because I know he did the, the Shape 81 that came out in 81 for Don Post Studios when he worked for them. Uh, but I know that he also re-released that later on uh, when he found a casting of it and he started to reproduce them. So then the other one was when um, Sean Clark was selling the Sean Clark Small 75 um, out of the back of the Fangoria magazines. Now, as far as who made the first one that caught everyone's attention on a mass scale... Um, was the he mask in ninety nine two thousand that MMP produced and that he was selling them strictly on eBay because before that he was redoing Don Post masks and kind of like what people are doing uh, redoing Tots masks and putting up putting them up on the bay and selling them for two three hundred bucks he was doing that back in the year ninety eight ninety nine two thousand and then he got a hold of the he mask and kind of made his career but. Um, I think any one of those three, depending upon what you believe, who you believe, it it really is comes down to those three, I think. Okay. And then he asked how you got uh, into redoing masks. I know you started painting them before you started molding them. What was the, I guess, the first one that you did? Well, the first one was on the set of uh, H3O, as I mentioned. Uh, we were in the first night of shooting, and... Um, I sold off my SSN curse mask, which my number 10 copy, which I still to this day regret. Um, it was the first, uh, outside of the Sam Hain, the first H6 I ever bought. And that was one of the first 10 to jump on it. Uh, but I sold it for close to $900 to fund the movie I wanted to do. And just because Gary Monger at the time was a really good friend of mine, I was moderating his page he was coming out with the Thorned Mask. Not the Thorned LE, which the Thorned LE was a recasted CGP V2, a.k.a. Raining Red, um, that he did well before I got the mold, but that's that's already been well documented in the H6 Mask episode, uh, episode 8, for those that want to go listen to it. Uh, but uh, the Thorns that he came out with, I ordered two. One was for the beginning of the movie before the, before the mask rots into like a H six Rob zombie style. And, um, the initial mask that I did, um, was weathering that first H six. That was like a classic H six. That was way too white. Um, there was not enough weathering on it. And by the time you lit the movie set, you couldn't see anything any bit of weathering on it and it was just blown out and I was like that doesn't look right and it needs some color so that was the first thing I did the second thing I did was a Don Post 2006 um, and I got some pictures of it somewhere but that thing is a that thing was a pile of shit it was but it, it was it was between those two that got me bit by the bug and then when that mold came up for sale uh, that I just talked about, I bought it and started. And as far as you uh, you selling that curse, at least uh, at least now you know the guy that makes them. Yeah, a- a- according to popular narrative, is 
you know, I stole and recasted that from SSN, even though I've proven that I, through PayPal receipts that I bought, that I bought it directly from Sean. It's probably one of the most idiotic narratives that's ever come out about me. And the fact that he's never once came out and said, oh yeah, he recasted my mask. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, if a PayPal receipt doesn't prove that you bought it, I, I don't know. I don't know. This is a question that I really would like to hear an answer to. Eric Hofer asks, if you could take one mask in the franchise and, and redo it in an alternate version, which one would it be and what would you do to it? I, I've been thinking about this question since he posted it. And to be honest, what do you think this question means? Because I've taken it three or four different ways and I, and I want to give it the the time it needs because obviously it's important. Otherwise he wouldn't have asked, but are, are you meaning taking one of the actual screen use mask and making a, an alteration to it? I, I'm not real sure what he was asking. Well, I think his, his thing is, you know, cause you know, obviously there's a lot of, of masks in the various sequels that people aren't fond of four five, you know, H2O Rob zombie, things like that. So I guess his question would be, because in, in, like continuity wise, it makes no sense how the uh, what uh, you know is supposed to be the same mask changed from four to five or H two O to eight. Um, so I guess he's he's just saying if you could be on set and creating the mask for a movie, which one would you change? Because honestly, I like them all, but like I said, like the five makes no sense how much it changed from four. So I guess what what would you change on one of the sequel masks, like the hero, to make it? I guess continuity wise better for the movie i imagine that's what he's asking well the one i absolutely would never change uh would be the halloween six mask because otherwise i wouldn't be so fond of it to this day um it always bothered me because halloween four and five uh was supposed to be the same mask and obviously they're very very different uh, but the other thing that bothered me is i I knew that a new mask studio um, signed on, which was Cinema Secrets for Halloween 8. But that's also supposed to be the same mask from H2O. And you can see that they were trying to make it look similar, um, but obviously they, they both look very different. The ears are similar. Some of the features are similar, but the hair is pretty similar. Yeah, but it's still a very, very, very different mask. Um, I think if I would have, that's a tough question. Um, probably four and five because it's it's really the most noti- noticeable. Because with with resurrection, you can kind of explain it away, and it's not jarring. I mean, you can tell it's different, but it's not one of those things where it totally says, whoa, what happened to the mask? It kind of flows. Whereas 4 and 5, you go from a blank white Shatner-looking face to more of a witch-looking face, and it's just, it's very jarring. So you would just kind of just keep that 4 look looking the same, but just a slightly more, you know, beat up. Exactly, because I think if you go into a mine shaft to get blown out of it, whether you go down the river or not... The mask is still going to be sitting around for a year in a dirty element. You know, just dirty it up a little bit, grunge it up, make it look nice. You can still paint it, make it look exactly 
like the H5 mask came out, but, you know, just use the same sculpt. This is a good question. I don't think we've ever really talked about this, is what masks are in your personal collection and which one that you have has been with you the longest? And this is from Phil Colvin. If you would have asked me this in 2016, I could have, I could have really blown your mind. But um, problem is, is when I moved, or no, prior to that, when that narrative about me started in 2014, and again when I was framed for the H6 in 2015, a year later. Um, I lost a lot of passion. Um, people don't realize that outside of maybe Kevin, maybe Lawrence, maybe one or two other people, I didn't have anything to do with masks for two years, probably until I did the HMMAT podcast, you know, and that was because I was just so turned off and because I was so turned off, um, I sold off a lot of things and I wish I didn't like one of them being uh, one of the screen used masks that I used to cast H six that started that whole narrative that I stole a customer mask that I was framed for. Um, But I sold that off because I just couldn't stand to look at it anymore. Um, Because I was, I mean, here, here's how turned off I was. When I'm selling off a screen-used Hero Pull H6, and I want nothing to do with any H6 mask on my shelf, and I don't even want to look at an H6 mask, that tells you how turned off I was. For those that know me, that know how much I love that mask, that should tell you how pissed off and how turned off I was to just that entire thing in general, that I just... I started selling off everything as fast as I can get it. Cause every time I walked through my shelf, I had three Billy bookcases. You can look those up on Ikea. I had three Billy bookcases, four actually, um, three now, four then. So I had four cases that went up four or five shelves. I had things all the way from the top of my shelf, all the way down to the floor and then out. So, um, I had a lot of shit that was just gone. I eliminated, 75% of it by the time I moved in 2017 from my old house to my new house. And I just didn't want anything bad to happen to those during transit. And there was no, there was no feasible way to do it. And I'm like, well, I never wear these things. I I, I never have them. I was still, I was still, I, I was doing the HMMAT podcast at the time, but I wasn't really, uh, doing masks again to the point where I was letting a lot of that stuff that hurt and that anger go to where I could appreciate my collection. So everything was still sellable at that point. And at that point it was about paying for uh, the transit of the move. So I sold my 17 year old at the time number, number 10 copy um, Sam Hain mask that I got from its first run, which was the first mask I ever bought. Um, I sold off, gosh, so much, so much other stuff. Nathan Fresh bought a lot of it, but I really moved into my new house with no collection. And so I've been basically 
kind of starting over and then I think that I got something that I want and then I see something else that I want and then I go buy something else. So it's always changing, but as far as mask-wise goes, I got a ghost now that uh, Rick Ramby did for me. I got a DIY Kirk that he did for me. Um, you got my reigning red, so I don't have a six up there anymore. Um, my six proto went to Lawrence May. Um, my resurrection got sold off a year ago, um, but I still have what Rick made for me when he first got started, uh, which was one of his fall freaks uh, as a Kirk. And I have an MMP style cover mask that he did for me that he was trying to replicate. Um, I have a Phoenix somewhere, which is the burnt H3 mask concept. I have that somewhere. Uh, I do have a Night Stalker. And I do have a Night Stalker too. And a couple of other things that are non-Myers at this point. So which one that you have right now is the one that's most tenured with you? Both Night Stalkers. Alrighty. This is a good question because I know how much disdain you had for it. Chad Morphus asks, if you could redo 2018, give a, give a rough idea of the plot that you would use. See, I, I think that is a misconception that I hate the movie. Um, I Hate is a very strong word. Uh, but I think that the elements, like all the ingredients to make a really good, a really good meal were there. It's just a lot of what drove me nuts about the movie that I've said multiple times is that is the connective tissue to make it all kind of like all the spices to come together that make up that meal. And so you have a lot of segmented, fragmented scenes that as individual scenes, they work as a movie in a whole telling a one cohesive story that has a beginning and a middle and an end and has all these stakes uh, attached to it. It falls mightily short. So a lot of what I would do is a lot of cleanup with storytelling. Um, I would add about 30 to 40 more minutes onto the movie to allow for that storytelling to take place. And I would, I would allow some of these scenes like in the original Halloween to linger a little bit more to build the, the, the air of menace and the suspense and the things that worked that, 40 years later, we can still look back and why do we hold the original Halloween up even with all its flaws? Because it's not perfect either, but with all its flaws, why do we still hold it up as a filmmaking masterpiece? Because the stakes were, were, were huge. It made you feel and it made you scared. And there was this, it wasn't this 250 times a movie. I'm just going to stab someone for no reason. There was a reason for every kill. There was a, a chain reaction that started to happen as it all, all the dominoes started to fall around uh, everything. And it started closing Lori into one specific area so he could get her. And so a lot of my issues of what I would change with 2018, like I've talked about in the past, um, having her go see him at the, at the mental institution, which would give him the reason to want to break out. 
uh, in the first place. I didn't think that that was really explained other than Dr. Sartain let him loose. And once he was loose, it was like a rabid dog. He went on a killing rampage. That all makes sense. But from a storytelling perspective, again, I've, I've said this, I think this is now my third time. Jamie Lee Curtis, other than it just being Jamie Lee Curtis reprising Laurie Strode, tell me, what purpose did she have in that movie? And I'm asking so, you. Um, like you said, selling tickets. I mean, that was it was the most... Yeah, fiscally made the most money of any Halloween sequel ever. Exactly. Just, be, just because she came back to it. And I'm sure when, when H2O came out, it was the same thing at the time. Yeah, and, and to be honest, Blumhouse, and I've said it before, they do a really good job, really good job marketing uh, movies and their brands to get attention and to get people to buy tickets. There's a reason why they spend very little on production spend more on the marketing of it and the distribution of it to get asses every 12 inches. And it works. And that's why I'm saying if people are saying that, that, that thought that the elements of, of the first one were good are only going to improve now with the second one, I highly disagree with that because $250 million is telling them that they, that this is what people want. And there, you got a lot of, a lot of people in the fan base that say this was the greatest sequel since the first one, or since the first one. I disagree with that. Um, Halloween two, the original Halloween two was, was, was the best one, you know, it's my opinion. Uh, but the last Halloween film that actually gave you that feeling of the original that carried on with the legacy and the story was part four. That to me, that was the last good Halloween film that was in, in theaters this one could have been, could have been. It had the potential to be, but when you look at everything as a whole, Michael had no reason, no care, wasn't even thinking about Laurie Strode when he broke out. I think adding her into the mix early on to get him to see her, um, causing him to break out, trying to hunt her down, makes that entire ending scene more powerful. And the ending scene I loved, but it could have made that even more powerful from a t- storytelling and a, and a stakes perspective. Because now when he breaks out and he's trying to, he's trying to find her, guess what? He's, she's got a daughter and a granddaughter, which again, what was their purpose in the film? And don't say selling tickets like, like her because you know we couldn't have cared less if they were in it or not. Uh, but they had no purpose in it because they weren't flushed out. They didn't make us care about them. They didn't raise the stakes, but you add that little element in to add to Lori's backstory and why she's in this film. Well, now you have a reason that she's there. Now you see Michael starting to go after the granddaughter and the daughter to kind of get back to Lori. So it all kind of, once again, it's that connective tissue that flushes things out a little bit more. Um, and one of the ways I've talked about in the past of doing it, and I hate rehashing these things, but I know not everybody's heard this. So if this is your first time, um, there was a, there was an entire scene where the granddaughter's walking with her two friends, uh, where they're exploding pumpkins and talking about Lori Strode and kind of omitting the myth that their brother and sister, that whole thing. Why don't they take a stroll through the uh, cemetery after that? And they walk into the cemetery and 
she's talking about the murders and talking about, you know, what her grandmother went through. And then by that point, um, the podcasters are showing up just like they did in the theatrical cut. And Michael followed the podcasters to the graveyard. Well, then Lori shows up there and starts to try to have that conversation with her granddaughter that she had at the school, but have it at the cemetery. Michael makes the connection that that is her granddaughter. Oh shit. Now all of a sudden the podcasters are there. All that stuff could still play out exactly the same, but you're condensing that location into that. So once again, you're adding more story tissue to tell that story, to make that bond stronger so that we do not want to see Michael kill, um, her family. And ultimately we don't want to see him kill her. So it just continues to lead the same way. And all the kills were just stabs. A lot of it were just stabs. And I just, I got bored of it after a while. And when you look at what happened in the original two Halloweens, there were one of the things that made it even more frightening is you didn't know what he was going to use. He found different things based on the, the, the tricks he was setting up because he was like a, a sadistic child and killing serial killer, killing people. You didn't know what he was going to use, which made it even more frightening. I thought, and where is, you know, where this one, like, I, I think, I think it was in your group where I commented last night. I loved the Mr. Riddle backyard scene. I loved the, I love the throwback to it. You know, they're, they're using the names of old characters. They did their homework, all that stuff. I loved the thing where it fell flat for me is by the time you got to the point where he was stalking him, first of all, that lasted way too short. There was nothing there. And what did he do? Stabbed him. And that was the end. We cut away after he starts to, you start to see the spike go into his face. Yeah, it's gruesome, but is it scary? Is it going to make me jump out of my seat and make me terrified? No. Then we have Allison come back. And besides the fact that she's a warm body that he wants to kill because he's a killer. What was the connection there? There was nothing. And then she runs away to the house after that. And he disappears. You know, that could have been like a recreation. And cause since they were doing so many homages, why not, why not have that chase scene build for a little while and have him chase her around and build that suspense so that when she finally does get to the house, it means that much more. And you're taking the audience on that further ride because as it was, there was the stab, the, 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 the face down the gate, she screams, runs, and then that's really the end of the scene because she, all she does is run to the house, and that's it. I think they missed a very key element of what made the original so good. Because if you tally up the kills in that movie, there's five. Yep. A total of five. And they all, to an extent, serve a purpose. Michael sees her for the first time and is fixated on her ever since. He doesn't go into the school and kill a bunch of people. He doesn't kill everyone he sees on the street. There are too many useless kills in 2018. And and uh, one big thing that I've just been sitting here thinking about is, I mean, other than pure luck, when he breaks out, other than, I guess, maybe Sartain informing him, how would he know she's even still alive? Yeah, he's older than her, 
and all that jazz, but she could easily have been dead. She could have moved from Haddonfield. I mean, how does he know that she's still there and still alive? And he didn't going... because he wasn't after her. He wasn't well, after her. If if well, she if she never showed up in that film ever, it would have just been him going around kill, killing random people. It, it would have been which, like it would have been like people that we don't care about getting stabbed, and that's why I think a lot of the kills that happened in 2018 fell fell very short because everything you talked about the five kills in the original the reason they meant so much is because of the clever storytelling and the writing to make you care for those for those characters we didn't get to spend enough time with these people we didn't get to know anything about them and how they fit into everything so we don't see something bad happen to them and that we care about something bad happening to them like when I I forget the babysitter's name in this one that's how irrelevant she is uh but the blonde did you really care that she got killed no i mean she was kind of playful and kind of a brat kind of like uh uh, annie was in part one but she she lacked the charm to make you love her like you loved annie bracket and that's the thing is you know we you get introduced to the main characters in h1 pretty much all at the same time and they have a good 10-minute dialogue together. Like, who is Michael fixated on in 2018? Nobody. He's just going around killing everything in sight, and there's not a single sequel in any of these where he just does that. He doesn't just go around just killing everything he sees. There was zero purpose for, I don't know, the, you know, he didn't have to kill the kid. You know, there was no reason for that. He could have just stolen the truck. There was no reason for him to to hit the lady over the head with a hammer just to steal a knife and then immediately walk into her neighbor's house and then stab that lady. What was the purpose of that? Yeah, and again, you know, um, that little scene with the hammer or the hammer to the to the person uh, to just get the knife that was a little nod to Halloween too with the um, with the Elrod scene and. Look, he didn't do anything at the, in the Elrod scene except for creep us out, and we're going, oh my god, he's going to kill these old people, and he never did. But it was, I mean, tell me, tell me yes or no, was that was that scary? But there's a lot of people now, they think that violence and the and the violence that we see on screen equals to that was that was gruesome and that 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 made Myers badass. Okay, I'm not disagreeing that it made him badass. But that did that really make you scared? No. The, the, the first two films were simplistic in a sense that they built up the fear inside of us all that we don't want to see in our everyday lives. Whereas in the 2018, and even um, more apparent in the Rob Zombie films, it was over the top, let's see how far we can push it, like, you know, the teeth being dro- dropped on the floor. Yeah, very cool. Very different, but when you start to think about Michael as a character, it's very uncharacteristic. And people are like, oh, well, you have to ignore everything after the first one. Okay, that's all I'm comparing it to. Because in the first one, he was very clever, very slick, and he had a purpose, which, again, raised the stakes and made it scarier, which is why we hold it into such high regard. He toyed with everybody. And in this one, it just seemed like, hey, how much gruesome shit can we get on the screen 
to throw shock value at it that we haven't done before just for the purpose of the people that like that over-the-top grotesque violence because we've been desensitized to it for the last dozen years. Exactly. I mean, and my biggest concern with the next two is they're going to do like with the Star Wars franchise. You know, the first one was okay, reintroducing the franchise to people and think, okay, they, they might have it, they may not. We'll see how the next one goes. I really think that Halloween Kills is going to be like Last Jedi, and it's going to be so bad people won't watch it a second time. Yeah, it, I I haven't watched Last Jedi since I saw it in the theaters. I I thought there was elements to it was which was okay, but as far as it me being like, man, I have to see that again. No, not at all. I'll never even own it, and I'll and I'll watch Attack of the Clones again, but I'll never own Last Jedi. And this, the Rise of Skywalker trailer dropped uh, yesterday as the time of recording this, and again, I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of times too, and you know, I've said this before too about 2018 is. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people go in with certain expectations. And when a trailer is so badass that they get so hyped and so excited and they're fans, they tend to go the extreme one way or the other. Either they're very negative, oh, that trailer sucked, I don't like the look of the new mask, I, I, I don't, I, you know, there, there could be... a millions of things, but there's, then there's also the other side, the extreme, oh my god, it looks so badass, I can't wait, and they whip their dick out and start beating off all over themselves. You know, granted, as a Bucks fan, I've learned to temper that expectation. I hope for the best, but I'm preparing for the worst, and some people call that pessimistic. No, I call it, I'm tired of being disappointed. I'm tired of being let down because when I go in with zero expectations, one way or the one way or the other, it can only go two ways. It can either go south or it can go skyrocket. And I'm going, oh my God, that far exceeded anything that I ever expected because I went in with nothing. A lot of times people go in that end up hating it go into it thinking it was going to be something else or because they advertise again slick marketing John Carpenter's back it's gotta be good okay last time John Carpenter's made a good movie is in the mouth of madness in 1993 okay so I went in saying okay I, I, I met John Carpenter I've watched a lot of John Carpenter's interviews over the last 25-30 years and it's always about money. Well, they're not paying me enough, so I'm not going to do it. And when it when when you get that ingrained in your head, I never thought him signing on. I'm like, okay, show me you care, because you've been distancing yourself and trashing the franchise ever since you left after Halloween three. That it's really hard for me that when you had an opportunity to come back and get everybody together. To do H2O, you shit all over the idea and claim money was one of the biggest reasons you wouldn't do it. And it's like... Go ahead. He's kind of like the George Lucas of the franchise. He gets all the credit, but people fail to realize there was a team of people that helped make that great. You know, would, would Halloween, the original, have been as great 
if Deborah Hill wasn't there, if Dean Cundy wasn't there, if Nick Castle wasn't the shape, you know, all the people who were there pitching ideas and adding to it and, and, and all the other things, you know, John Carpenter didn't do everything. And I think he gets too much credit because, yeah, he made the score and it's fantastic. But he didn't come up with the concept of the movie. Right. That was Erwin Yablons, and, you know, he didn't fund it. So, I mean, there's a lot of people with a lot of hands in that basket that should be getting credit. And just because his name's on the title, and this is no disrespect to him in any way, he's a great filmmaker. Absolutely. But he's, uh, you know, just like I think Mustafa Akkad got too much credit. You know, he kept greenlighting shitty sequels. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you've done good and you've done bad. So you're not – with or without you, it's going to keep going, and we want you to be there because you you know it better than anyone else. But you're not the only person that can make it good, and that's been proven with Halloween 4. Well, it, again, going back to the first two movies, everybody talks about the tone and the and the cinematic lighting and all this other stuff. That was all Dean Cundy. You know, no Halloween se- uh, sequel except for – I mean – I. I would say four looks really good. Um, it really makes you feel like it's that season. Um, but at the same time, is it Dean Cundy doing the cinematography? No. Uh, is it Dean Cundy planning the lighting plots with his team of the gaffer and the lighting technician and the grips and all that stuff? No, it's not his team and it's not him. Um, a lot of the magic of the shots that John wanted to do in the first film came to execution by the masterful mind of Dean Cundy. Now, Dean Cundy's gone on to win multiple awards outside of Halloween, Back to the Future, uh, Jurassic Park. I mean, you name it. He's got, he's got a list a mile long of credits. So I'm not talking about Dean Cundy in even 1993 versus 1978, but he still had the talent. He knew how to accomplish something to get John exactly what he wanted and Give it that look and feel and that air of menace that the first two had. That mystery, that mystique, that creepiness, that suspense. He knew how to shoot it based on what John wanted to do. Halloween like, four, ha- Halloween four, for as much credit as I get it, give it, um, it still wasn't Dean Cundy and his team shooting that. Had it been, it probably would have been ten times even better. Like the uh, the blue light dimmer and the upstairs scene in Halloween one, and that they repeated in the office in two. That was all Dean Cundy. Yes, and the and the Steadicam uh, work and the shot that was introduced by Dean Cundy. Yeah, that that was one of the the very first movies to use the steady. Uh, I guess they used the Panaglide, but it's essentially the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they helped pioneer that. They didn't invent it, but they put it on the damn map. Exactly. And then everybody wanted to copy it afterwards. Halloween 6, where I, where I talk about the cinematography is great. And it was. And I'm not about to shit all over it. I think that Billy Dickinson, who, who did the cinematography in that film, did an amazing job. Uh, Joe Chappelle tried... One of the things that Joe Chappelle succeeds at is visuals. And I think that he made a very visual film... Um, that worked in in its time frame for the story they were trying to tell initially and with Billy Dickinson to to do the cinematography. But again, was he Dean Cundy and Dean Cundy's team that was going to take that concept and even make it better? No. 
I thought that the new Halloween, I thought it was shot very well. I love the pale golds and the oranges and the different color schemes and palettes that they used. I like, I, I loved it. I hated the cinematography on Resurrection. I hated the cinematography on H2O. I hated it on H5. Um, I even hated it on Rob Zombie's H2. I liked it on part one, um, but because I thought that they were trying to reintroduce a lot of the element, but still it wasn't, it wasn't Dean Cundy. So back to what, I guess what we're all trying to say is, is that John Carpenter made a masterful film. Rick Rosenthal did the best he could <laughs> with part two. I'm not saying it's a bad film. I, I love it. Um, I could, I really, honestly, I look at one and two as the same, like, extension of 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 one another they're different in a lot of ways but they're the same in a lot of ways but you know to try to recapture that magic a lot of people put the stock in well john carpenter's coming back you know every every problem that we've ever had with the franchise is about to go away when i said he is there and i said this and i got raked over the coals for this when it was announced he was coming back, I said, he's coming back in a figurehead position with his name on the title. They may go to him for some consulting and he'll give it to them, but he's there for name recognition because Blumhouse knows that they have to resurrect this franchise and they know by putting his name on the title and then eventually when they got Jamie Lee back, that that was going to put asses every 12 inches, and it proves at the box office. Again, Blumhouse is very smart on how they market their films. Absolutely. And I'm, again, cautiously optimistic. Hopefully we'll see next year what they produce with their next one. I'm going in once again. I'm not going in saying that it's going to be worse or it's, I mean, it's definitely, I don't think it's going to be better, but I could be surprised. I could be totally, totally, totally surprised. But as far as to, finally put a, a button on Chad's an, uh, question that we took uh, 20 minutes to answer uh, is a lot of those connective tissues that I, that I mentioned uh, now for the third time, I really think that could have taken that film and put it over the top because I really think that they did not have enough time to flush out the story they were trying to tell. And if you watch it 88 minutes, I mean it, that 88 minutes flew by. Flew by. I think they tried to, to, to mimic too much from the like the original is a ninety minute movie, but you know that doesn't mean you have to limit yourself to ninety minutes. Yes, but to to go off of that, the original had ninety minutes. They didn't have pointless little side scenes that did nothing to further the story, like throwing someone's not, uh, phone into a nacho cheese dip. Who gives a fuck? I, I, did, did you care about the boyfriend, whether he was in that film or not? I didn't. You know? I would have liked to see him die. <laughs> yes, but, I mean, by that point, yes, you'd want to see him dead, but had she not had a boyfriend at all, would you have cared? No. No, because it would have taken nothing away from the story. Exactly, and you could have spent that ten minutes of screen time between all the scenes that he was in, that extra ten minutes... And there's a lot of information you can give in 10 minutes, especially visually. And I think they could have spent that 10 minutes somewhere else. Um, cutting out the... Uh, cutting out little things with... You know, I, obviously, I mean, 
the whole thing with the doctor and the switcheroo thing. I mean, obviously I, w- I would have taken that out. Um, but there were so many little pointless things that was in that film. And I, I haven't, I haven't watched it in pretty much a year almost that I, I really can't sit here and just dissect every scene. But I, I remember talking about several times how there was just so much filler that they could have cut out and they could have spent more time developing other characters in that 88 minutes. Because when you look at the original Halloween and even Halloween two, they had 88 to 90 minutes to tell a story. They didn't have time to go fuck around with side stories that nobody was going to care about. They were into have a, a strong beginning, strong middle, strong closing. And the, the closing was going to be the climax. It was going to be the whole moneymaker, what we've built up for the last 75 minutes and the last 15, 20 minutes is going to knock your fucking socks off. And it did. So my point is, is if your goal was to get us to care about the babysitter and the little black kid and, you know, uh, random characters, give us a reason to don't give us peanut butter on the penis. Don't give us a uh, phone and nacho cheese dip. Don't, don't give us this bullshit that means nothing to the overall direction of the story you're trying to tell. <laughs> I, I thought the peanut butter thing was kind of funny, but yes, it was. It is very useless in the point of the movie. Mm-hmm. Except for Dad's a dork, and you know, until he proved at the beginning he was useless anyway. And am I the only one that finds these timelines to be a bit odd? Like, it's forty years. Like, I feel like after forty years, why is your like? Uh, I can't remember her damn name off the top of my head, but that played Lori's daughter. She's Karen. well over. Yeah, Karen. She's well over forty in real life. I mean, these, I don't know. Like the ages didn't seem to match up for me. Yeah, I, I felt like if they would have uh, even casted Danielle Harris as Karen, that could have been pretty amazing. Oh, that'd have been sick. You know, just again, uh, but a lot of my gripe is is all story, and a lot of people are like, "Well, yeah, well, hindsight's twenty twenty. It it is." But again, you look at it this way. You had fans of the franchise that made that made that film. You know, like David Gordon Green and Danny McBride has has said many times that they had an idea for it and they they wanted to pitch it because they were such big fans and it was important for them to bring John on. Whether all that shit's true or not, or whether it's marketing hype or whatever the fuck it is, bottom line is you brought them on, etc. You and but believe me, they they did their research. They did their homework to get their history correct, which I com- I commend them for. But at the same time, it's like you had two years with supposedly the guy who could walk on water and do no wrong at, at your side with John Carpenter. You had erased everything past the first one. And all you had to focus on was the was the folklore that was created in the original and make a sequel to it. That's all you had to do. And Pretty that, easy on paper. It it is. And it's like if you're a writer that, that makes your living on writing, like I'm people should know by this point I'm friends with Dan Farrens who wrote Halloween Six. He and I have had plenty of phone conversations and private conversations talking about this very same thing. It's like, if he didn't have to come in and clean up the mess that H5 made for him for H6, 
He's like, there were so many different directions. He goes like, if I could have just picked up after the original and wrote um, another movie, he said, I, I probably could have wrote something ten times better than I did. So, you know, it, it's it's just one of those things, man. It's just like, yeah, I mean, I mean everybody armchair quarterbacks, everybody armchair, armchair says, well, I could have done it better. Yeah, maybe you could have, but you're not. But my point is, is if you're going to take the job and you're going to take the responsibility, just do it right. You can still make a, a movie that is for the masses while still appeasing the fans. That is possible. Absolutely. So, anyway, moving on. All right. And this one, I don't want to get too in-depth because I think we can make a good episode out of this. But uh, Adam, Griffith has two, uh, Adam Griffin has two questions. Uh, what are your Halloween fan films? I'm sorry. Are they available to watch? Where and what are their names? And then he asks, is there an H20 mask in the independent market that has lineage to any of them? So I guess the K&B mask, the, 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 I guess the main one you see on screen, uh, the H6 recast they use, are any of those are, – are any masks available with lineage to any of those? Um, but to answer his first question, yes, uh, those fan films are available on YouTube. Halloween H30 and H35 special are the name of them. Um, free to watch on YouTube. Yeah, and they're they're a combo set. Like originally, I was going to put them out individually, but I didn't want someone watching H3O and saying, "Oh, well, is there going to be a sequel?" Yeah, it's here. Here's the link. Oh, hey, is there a sequel? Yep, we made one. Here's the link. And I didn't want to do that 500 and something times, so I just put them together and said, "Hey, if you want to watch them back to back, here here they go." Personally. Um, H35 is is the better film. It's better shot. Um, I think that overall, it's just it's just a better movie. Um, quality is better. Sound is better. Uh, cinematography is better. Storytelling is better. Um, but again, you're talking about five years difference in time because we shot H3O in 20, uh, 2008. We saw we shot H35 in 2013. And we were at the dying age of standard definition uh, technology by the end of 08 when we did that movie. And HD hadn't yet taken over, but it was about to. Just like 4K is about to take over you know, HD. So my point is, is H30 plays out in a lot of ways. Yeah, you can tell that there was effort put in. You can tell that it looks better than Uncle Harry's home videos trying to make a fan film that we see more of than not. But when you watch them back to back, you can say, well, what changed? What did you get better? I mean, yeah, I mean, guess I guess you could say that. But at the same time, we also spent less on H35 and we had many more um, pieces of technology, I guess you could say, available to us to use by 2013. And then his second question, are there any H2O masks with lineage to any of the heroes? Yes, and I'm going to say this, and you know, people are going to hear what they want to hear, so please try not to hear what, you're, what I'm not saying. And I'm going to try to be as careful and as positive as I can answering this. If you want an H2O mask that has pretty much direct lineage to the original Stan Winston mask that you see on screen. Yes. Go find any SSN, um, Chris Durand or 
V2 that they called it at the time. Um, find them secondhand if you can. But Tom Smith uh, from Morningside Studios, or back in the day it was Smith's Grove Sanitarium, that was the name of his company, now it's Morningside, um, he actually had had the hero, one of the one of the five, and he uh, casted the uh, from the top part of the head, down behind the ears, all the way to the neck extension, all the way forward, and then all he did was add the back half. Um, but that is the direct face from one of the one of the masks you see on screen. I and I believe it's the one. Uh, in the elevator scene and when he stabs through the drawer um, when Laurie kicks him in the nuts um, but he has that and then anybody that claims that there's direct lineage off of that from other artists I'm just going to leave it at that uh, <clears throat> Brothers Return um, that's a, actually a recast of Tom Smith's mask and I've covered it on a different episode, but uh, Tom has confirmed that multiple times. Um, Father Phantom got a very large blank from Tom, saying that he needed one to fit his large head, and magically a month later, the brother's return came out, and the story of, I casted, I casted one of the hero masks to make this, and that whole story, which is a fucking lie. Um, he recasted that from Tom and he also tried to recast or he did recast an SSN V2 at one point to make his version one. Uh, so where my seven comes from, um, I bought my seven from Gary Monger at H3O Productions. Now he said that, I mean, when I bought it and this is what everybody heard is that he bought a um from one of his friends that what i i don't remember the entire story but this was out there for a long time and you can't find information on it anymore anymore so i don't want to try to fill in the gaps and paraphrase because i'd be taking a stab i wasn't paying close attention when he came out with that at the time i only knew about the cuz i was coming back into the hobby at that time when that came out um, and I met him right when his H6 was going to be coming out. So I didn't really research it a lot by the time I was going to buy the mold from him. Uh, MMNet had completely wiped their entire database of any old posts. And I remember seeing a post way back when, him announcing the project and how he came to acquire something. But anyway, long story short is he casted, I guess, one of the stunt masks or something like that. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But every mod and admin accepted it, bought one, and it circulated for years. And I ended, I ended up with uh, with the mold once he once he retired, and then I made the the seven two off of it. Didn't like it, sold sold the master off, went back to the V one earlier this year, and I love it. Now, as far as uh, the Don Post looking K and B mask. SSN was the only one that ever held an original production mold or copy to that. And the one that TOTS produces is one from the SSN mold. Alrighty. Uh, let's see. 
Ronald Graves left many a question, so I'm going to kind of rapid fire these out because he left he left a lot. Um, his first one will be, uh, what was your favorite uh, story arc from any of the Halloween sequels or any of the movies? Personally, I like I like four, five, and six just because you know I I loved Daniel Harris. I love that it continued post H two with the fire burns and all that stuff. Um, also, the fact that we had Donald Pleasance in all three of those, and no matter what, you can explain it away. He passed away, and all this. Other, I mean, you can explain it a million times over. No Halloween movie has been the same or has been as great as bad as H six was from a story perspective, it still had Donald Pleasance and, Do- and Dr. Loomis in there that drew you back to this is Halloween. Um, I'm sorry, Jamie Lee Curtis just doesn't have that same effect for me. Yeah, she's Laurie Strode. Yeah, she was part of that. But the thing that we remember most, especially about the entire series, is Dr. Loomis, and which is Michael's nemesis. And I think that that's sorely been missing uh, since he passed away. So... I look at the original timeline, Halloween's 1, 2, 4, 5, and 6 are canon to me, and H2O and H8 is this first alternate universe, and the H1 on 2018 is the third alternate universe, and then you got Zombies remakes, and that's in a class all by itself. Uh, what are your personal grail masks? Hmm. And this doesn't necessarily have to be one that you own. Um, technically, I I had it and I sold it, which was my um, H6 mask from one of the screen use molds that I sold that I really wish I never did. Uh, of all the masks that you've rehauled, overhauled, started, finished, uh, what was what were some of your favorites? That's a uh... It's a hard question to answer because there's been so many. Um, God, I don't know. I don't know. All right. Um, let's see. Ask some some tips and techniques for those new to the hobby for mask painting and herring, and then uh, your opinion on clean versus dirty masks. Um, clean masks, if they're photographed right, look amazing. Um, you know, we do see a lot more grime on the mask, especially the original, than people give it credit for. Um, it wasn't a spick and span clean mask. And people are like, yeah, but if you look at the shot with Nick Castle with his eyes crossed, holding, holding the mask up on his fist, you can tell that the mask was clean. Actually, no, you're out in broad sunlight with cameras that are now over 40 years old that's a black and white still. And back then, they didn't have the luxury of time to sit around and set up that shot and photograph it as it actually looked. So when I get that um, in my inbox to, yeah, I want it clean just like this. I'm like, well, that's how do you know that that's clean? You can't tell that. It's out in the sunlight, out outside where you can't tell. Because I've seen masks that I have practically nuked 
have bad photographs taken of it and it looks clean. And people are like, man, that's a really clean mask. I'm like, no, actually it isn't. Here's my pictures to prove otherwise. So, you know, we, we really don't know outside of a couple of shots that we, that we, that we've had uh, the opportunity to see where we see that there is actual real grime on the mask. And that would be, uh, and it's even hard to say the phone scene because that's, that's all Dean Cundy's lighting. Um, but you can see it in some of the behind the scenes stuff when they're inside the house and, you know, various ones, one where he's cross-eyed with the needle, uh, in his neck. I mean, you can tell there's a lot of flesh on the neck and a lot of grime and different things, but I mean, obviously it got grimier and dirtier by the time H2 happened. But, uh, you know, personally, I like to, I don't like to go overboard with it. I think it needs some, some dirt and some grime and some, some weathering, uh, but I used to be asked to here, here's another artist photograph. Can you make it look like this? And you can throw JC, AHG, you can throw any artist that you want in there that took amazing shots that everybody loved. Early in my career would ask me to make it look like that photograph. Well, I had to chase an edited two dimensional photograph. So a lot of times I would force, force the weathering and when people are like, yeah, he doesn't paint his mask accurately. Well, you didn't ask me to paint it accurately. You asked me to copy a another artist's edited photograph. So when you asked me to do that, I did it to the best of my ability from what I can tell from a two-dimensional photograph. Um, that shows a lot of black. That shows a lot of dirt and grime. Um, so I did the best I could. If you didn't tell me to paint it like the original movie, if that was the case... I could show you what that looks like and you tell me if you like it or not. If not, what's your idea of as close to the hero as possible? Show me. So personally, I, I do like grime. I do like dirt. I just don't like it overdone. Um, see. Lighting and display tips. There's an entire episode on that about five or six episodes back. Just go listen to that. It's pretty short. Um, this one's interesting. If you were to direct a versus movie involving Michael Myers, who would you put him against and how would you have their universes collide? Uh, and I'm going to preface this question with what, what a lot of people always want to put Jason against Michael, and here's why that doesn't work. Neither one of them speak. So why is Freddy versus Jason, as bad as it is, so good? Because Freddy is hilarious and he does all the talking. So you have to put him against someone who speaks. That's just my opinion. Ghostface. Absolutely. Because you put him against anyone else, I mean, at the end of it, no matter how much damage he can take, he's still a person. Yep. And I think even Go. him, I think even him against, um, you know, like Halloween versus Texas Chainsaw Massacre would, would work because, you know, you have, you have the complexity of the family that can make that interesting. You know, um, just my thought. Let's see. He asks uh, care tips for displaying mask, and um, this is one I, I actually want to address. And then the, the speculation on storing masks on a foam head, and then how you stuff them, um, and your opinions on foam filling. So I guess the first one would be just uh, tips for display and care. So I guess it, it ages properly. Um. Again, that's all subjective, and it's all comes down to what you believe. I think that there's a lot of. I mean, look. 
we all have our opinions. We all have things that we like and what we believe is true. I mean, there's some people that, that will eat, you know, knockoff generic macaroni and cheese, for example. They say it tastes exactly like Kraft or Velveeta. You get somebody that only buys Velveeta and says, that's crap. You know, and so I, I don't want to go into this by saying, well, this is what you need to worry about because you know what? There's a lot of people that think I'm wrong and that's okay. All I can do is I can tell you what I did and tell you that I never had a problem. Does that mean that you won't have a problem? No, it doesn't mean that at all because everything can, can, can vary. A lot of times masks are bought secondhand. You don't know how that mask was treated before you owned it. If you buy it directly from an artist, you don't know what latex was used, what chemicals were used, or what techniques were used to weather that that may have an adverse effect on latex down the road. Which is also why, and I don't mean to sidebar this, but this kind of plays into the same thing. There's, uh, you know, and I'm not trashing him, but I'm being honest here. Nick Mulpagano claims that he has an indestructible that will last forever latex. Well, how the fuck do you know that? What proof do you have of that? Do you have this exact same brand of latex that was making Michael Myers mask three, four hundred, five hundred years ago that you just happened to get the manufacturing code for that you were able to recreate and it's still holding up to this day? Because you can't make that claim and know that for a fact. So that, to me, that's just idiocy. That people take that as, oh, well, he has latex that will last forever. Nobody knows that for a fact. Back on track here. I had my 17-year-old Sam Hain mask sitting displayed on a foam head for 17 years. Not once did it ever show any signs of deterioration, dry rot, anything. And if I did see anything, I certainly wouldn't have attributed it to um, the use of a foam head. And the reason I say that is because Gary Phillips of Mass Maker Productions that produced those was a chain smoker. You know, we already know the damages of nicotine and different things that did to the, to the production masks early on. We already, that's well documented. I would have attributed um, any deterioration if it happened to that Sam Hain mask to Gary's chain smoking around the mask versus it being set on a foam head. I had my SSN curse sitting on a foam head from 2001 until I sold it at the end of 2008. And it was still in pristine condition. Now, does that mean that, well, Chris said that my mask will sit on a foam head and I'll never have any problems with it. That's not what I'm saying at all. Because again, you can't, you can't, determine what's going to happen to each individual mask. My conditions of where I store mine, I, I, uh, for, for years I had a bookshelf, as I already mentioned, in my front room that was in climate controlled out of direct, harsh, hot sunlight beating directly on them. And they were in, I, I don't want to say I put them in the dark and bagged them and all that stuff. I didn't do that, you know, but... Did I meticulously, you know, go through and powder them and dust them often? No, 
you know, when I got done wearing them, if I wore them, yeah, I wiped them out with a with a baby wipe or a, a Lysol wipe. When it was dry, I cornstarched it back up, put it back on the styrofoam head, put it back up on the shelf out of direct harsh sunlight and in my climate controlled room. And that was it. You may live in a in a situation where you have afternoon sunlight beaten right down onto your shelf. That's just going to cause it to yellow or going to cause different things to happen to it. Maybe it's going to break down faster than it would have. There's so many different variants. Maybe your perfect temperature in your house is 82 degrees. And some of you, maybe it's 65 degrees. In my house, it was 74 year, year round. So does that play a role? I don't know. Um, I'm sure that there's some, there's some truth to it, but you know, I, I think too many people make so much, too much out of the styrofoam heads. Um, I never personally had a problem, but again, you know, I didn't have that mask. I didn't have two identical masks, one sitting on a pole with just some plastic bags in it sitting on a pole for 50 years and I didn't have a Sam Hain mask sitting on a styrofoam head for 50 years and saying, Hey, I'm going to do a science experiment and see which one lasts the longest. I, I didn't do that. So it's impossible to determine. There's some people that are afraid of styrofoam because what goes into styrofoam, if that's what you believe, who am I to tell you that you're wrong? It's, it's your property. It's your mask. You take care of it. However you feel that you need to. I think, you know, just take general precaution. If you're scared of styrofoam, don't use them. You can get a stand, you can get a paper towel holder, you can get a roll of paper towels. I buy coated styrofoam heads, so they've got a layer of, it's kind of like felt over it. And then if you really want to be cautious, just slap a black bag over it and then call it a day. If you wear it, clean it, starch it, put it up, don't stick it in the sun, and keep it at a reasonable temperature, and I think you'll be all right. Because I have a Party City mask that I bought, Jesus, in 2008 or nine. And that was 10 years ago. And other than the rip I ripped in the face and the shitty hair falling off, the latex is in perfect condition. And I've, I mean, there have been plenty of times where it was stuck in a storage unit or crammed under some shit, you know, and it's still fine. And you know that stuff's not, not quality latex. So, I mean, just better, you know, be on the safe side and you shouldn't have any issues. Right. Exactly. Um,. I know we've talked about this off camera and uh, off audio, but do you stuff your masks? With my dick? No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I. Um, they sell it at Michael's, Hobby Lobby, because um, I'm I'm using a lot of B-Man Gems uh, mask stands. I don't use paper towels. I don't use paper towel holders or any of that stuff. I could, but I don't, and um, I really like his stands, and for the masks that I do collect, I want them to sit on something really nice. He does a nice wood knob on top, um, but I don't want that sitting directly on the latex. I don't want to stuff it with plastic bags and then try to get it to sit down on there correctly. So what I've what I've learned that really works is um, you can go in back into the foam section, like where they sell, like, cushions for seats or you know like uh bed liners or whatever i mean but they but they sell sheets of foam um it doesn't have to be thick mine i think i don't know is about a quarter of an inch thick maybe half an inch if that 
um, and I cut it off in squares, put it up in the crown of the head, and when I set the mask down, I flip it upside down and then feed the feed the rod into the crown of the head and then flip it back up. And then, therefore, you have a nice base uh, for it to sit on. You don't have a divot carving into your mask. You don't have um, any warping or anything like that. And if you cut the square big enough, it kind of spreads out the entire crown of the head and keeps the mask nice and full looking. And that's that's what I do. And on on the subject of mass displays, his final question, and what we'll close with was, do you prefer your 78 masks to have a castle stretch or no castle stretch? No castle stretch. And uh, uh, and again, this has been talked about a lot on the on the program. Is you know the you know you take the Captain Kirk mask and you make Myers out of it. You know the reason no one mask matches the hero perfectly is because you have seven, twelve, eighty-five different people wearing it during production from uh, from Wallace to Tony Moran to Nick Castle, all the different people who wore it. So you're going to match it to the scenes you want to match it to. Uh, if you make a really good one based off of a good Kirk, then you can display it to your liking. You can stretch it Warlock. You can stretch it Castle. If you put those things in to begin with, you're going to limit yourself in how you can display your mask and how you can wear it. Exactly, and that's why like, when everybody gets so goo-goo-gaga over these Castle stretch masks, I'm like, okay, in theory... Yeah, I understand why you would like that because there's a certain scene, all this stuff. I, I get it. But if you're going to wear it and you've got a fat head, well, now you're stretching it sideways while you still have this castle stretch long face going on. It's going to look weird. you know. And if you take an unaltered, unstretched Kirk and you put it on your head, you should be the one to be able to distort it just like they did in the film. And that's just my opinion. I don't get the whole castle stretch sculpts, and I, I've I've never liked any of them. And you know, there's a lot of people that'll probably be driving off the road right now hearing that, but they're like, "Yeah, but Nikos just came out with a really nice one. Yeah, it looks great on display, but put that on your head and see if it still looks exactly the same." And that's the thing, you know, when you buy your mask, you gotta think how the structure of your head. You know, the hero is very small. And Nick Castle had a long face and poofy hair. So unless you have all those ingredients, it's not going to look the same. And you just, some people just can't pull off a certain look. It just isn't going to happen for you. So you got to think, are you trying to get a mask for the purpose of displaying it or wearing it cosplaying? And you've got to go off those factors. I have a very small head. I have to buy small masks. So i got to play into that. Now, with that said, I only currently have one H1 and one H2, and they're both stretch masks just because that's how they were sculpted. But it's not so exaggerated that it really plays into it when I wear it. But again, that's me and me personally. You have to take your factors into account accordingly. Correct. I agree with that. Is there anything else you got? Or Oh, goodness. Um, just since, I guess since the question was asked um, about the lineage of the H2O, just to cover for people, does the Mofugga have screen lineage? Yes. Um, I think I've told this story before. Maybe I, maybe I've only told it in private, um, never publicly. But um, I used to be a career advisor for a film school here in Florida called Full Sail University. A lot of people have heard about it. NXT. Um, exactly. So, 
Um, I was a career advisor there uh, for the for the film team for over three years. And one of the things about that school that is both good and bad, uh, depend, depending upon what your opinion is, is the good thing is, is you have people that have that have worked real industry film jobs or stage jobs or music production or whatever you're whatever you're going to school there for and they've got so many different programs there now um but bottom line is is they have people that have worked higher up positions or been in positions within in this case in the film industry that come back to that school that can teach you the real ways of what the industry's like and that is one of the really cool positives one of the negatives where they get a lot of a bad rap is people go there to teach or go there to advise because they couldn't hack it. That's that's not always the truth. Um, there could be a million different reasons why they're not working in the industry anymore. But um, I was there for over three years, and I was I was working that job before I moved on and did masks full-time. First and foremost, I didn't graduate from there. I didn't go to that school, so I walked in as enemy number one because everybody I went in I was working alongside within the film department, I, for the for better or worse, inside that career development center, I was looked at as the outsider. I didn't come from the school's culture, I didn't come from the way they they taught things. I came from, I went to a smaller school, smaller film school, and I worked in Georgia and I worked in Florida back when it was booming. Like when Punisher was here, when Bad Boys 2 was here, when, you know, if you had big budget films being being shot that I was part of, that I got to work on. And that's what ended up, you know, I worked on NFL films with ESPN, did stuff with MTV and and things when they did a lot of production here in Orlando, which is why I moved to Orlando in the first in the first place. But when that all dried up and went away and the film budgets were being slashed and cut and things were moving on to the Texas's and, and, and Atlanta's and and different things, especially when Walking Dead came out. Um, It really put a situation in place where um, I was not in position. I was not single. I owned my own house because business was good. I owned my own house. I couldn't go away and go move from city to city to city, wherever the hotbed was. So I'm like, but I do have a lot of knowledge. I do have a lot of stuff that I that I've that I've worked on that I'm proud of that I can still lend to people coming out to teach them things that maybe I didn't know when I was going through as a student. Does does that make sense? Absolutely. So um I went to work there. I butted heads with the with the uh, with the lead advisor there. I guess he thought I wanted wanted to take his job or something like that. I don't know what I don't know what the situation was. I mean, you've talked to me, you've heard me. I, I mean, I'm a pretty direct, and I have a pretty big personality, and sometimes that rubs people the wrong way. And 
especially if if you're in a leadership position and you're you got someone in that is charismatic that has a big personality that has had success that's done it without the full sale banner you're going to try and protect your spot and try to do everything you can to kind of shovel them out, which is what he ultimately ended up doing. It came down to me versus him. And of course they chose him, kicked me out the door. I went and started WMP after that. And that that's, that's it. Back onto the H eight. I did make a lot of really, really cool connections and a lot of really cool friendships and people that I'm still friends with to this day. A lot of people I'm not, but a lot of people I am. One of the people that I had become friends with uh, while I was working there was someone, and we started talking at one of the gatherings. It was the first year I was there. Um, H3O had just wrapped. We were in post-production. I had the the Rob Zombie-style H6 mask that I wore to the event party. Um, And he had mentioned to me, um, he goes, man, I, I really like that outfit. I, I worked on that movie and I said, Oh, cool. I said, which one, you know, because people come from all over the place when they come back from the industry and go teacher. He was a teacher there. Um, which I was in the career development part where I help you find work as you're getting out of school. Uh, he was a teacher in one of the courses and he said, um, well, actually I, I, I worked on the Jason movie. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, totally different. Because everybody thinks that Michael Myers is Jason if they don't know. You know, it's just, it's, I mean, how many times have you walked in a Myers outfit down the street and says, hey, everyone, look, it's Jason. It's like, no, wrong, wrong killer. Um, But long story short is when people started to know that I was making them, um, this is when I was making the H6 Untamed um, part-time seasonally by year two I was there, which was 2009. Um, <clears throat> I saw him at the Halloween event again because Full Sail did it up big. You know, we usually took off took off an entire day of work, closed down the, and you and you got paid for it, but you hung out there on campus. And they took uh, where NXT uh, was is being shot now. It wasn't there then. They used to shoot it over on a very 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 small soundstage where this big Halloween event was and they turned that entire thing into like a like a full on Halloween production. It was it was cool as shit, man. And like people from all over the school would come and join there and hang out and drink and bullshit and do costume contests and just random shit. So I I ran into him again. It was only like the second or third time I had run into him, but every time I met up with him, we always had this really cool long drawn out conversation. So I said, "So which which Friday the 13th film did you work on? He goes, no, I, I worked on Halloween, the one with Jason. And I'm like, no, that's that's Michael Myers. I said, you you said you, you did Jason, so that's Friday the 13th. He goes, oh, shit, I totally get those mixed up. And um, he goes, right. He goes, but no, he goes, it, it was a Jason film. And I'm like, okay, well, it's not Halloween, so which Jason film was you, where, where did you work on? Because the last one that had come out was... Jason versus Freddy. He goes, no, no, it, it, it wasn't that one. And I said, well, the one before that was Jason X where he was in outer space. I said, you worked on that? And he goes, no, no, it was the one with Buster Rhymes. I said, so it was Halloween. 
<laughs> he goes, yeah, yeah, it was, it was shot, up in, shot up in Canada. And I said, oh, that's cool. And he goes, actually, he goes, I have one of the screen-used masks that was, that was shot, you know, um, that, was, that was one of the masks on screen there. And I said, really? I said, I would like to see it. So we decided to meet up um, at his place, and, you know, we, um, I met his wife and everything, and, you know, we, we kicked back, drank some beers, and, you know, I, I'm looking at this Screen News Resurrection mask, and I'm noticing that the patches of hair just, it, by this point, it had gone through production, and it had been six, eight years, or whatever it is. It was to the point where the hair was so thin, like you could see the scalp all the way through it. It was like Shawn Michaels when he had his hair pulled back, you know. Um, <laughs> so, uh, not quite Hogan status, but definitely Shawn Michaels. But uh, I, I, I said to him, I said, well, you know I make masks and stuff now, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And I went over and I felt it, and I said, this feels a little bit like synthetic um, fur or or even crepe at the time. I was just taking a stab because I wasn't really well-versed, you know, in different fibers at the time. And I said, if you ever want this thing rehaired, I'd be happy to rehair it for you. He goes, oh, cool. How much would you charge me? I said, well, while I got the hair off, if you would let me cast it, because it's really not ever am I going to get another chance to probably be this close to a resurrection mask ever again. Um, would you let me cast it? And then I wouldn't charge you a thing. And he said, yes. And at first he goes, but I'm only going to let you do the face and the neck and up to the ears. I don't, I don't want the whole thing. And I said, okay, um, well, we can do that. You know, I, I still won't charge you. I'm like, I can put the back half of the head on just like Tom Smith did, you know, you know, and I was, I was friend, really close friends with Tom. Tom lived 45 minutes. I mean, so I saw that entire process when he did the H2O, when he had the hero mask there. I mean, I saw the entire thing. So I knew if I needed to reach out to him, he'd be more than willing to help me because he was a friend of mine. So um, anyway, my initial casting, that my original H8 came off of a really shitty casting that I did that was, um, I think I called it Resurgence or something like that. And then I came out with the original Mofugga that I put the back half of the head on and tried it again. And it still wasn't, still wasn't correct, still wasn't right. I tried enlarging it. It looked even worse, and it just wasn't right. So the original face casting, ear casting, that whole thing was shot to hell. So... Um, but he reached out to me and he said, hey, man, um, I'm getting ready to move and I, I'm getting ready to part with this screen use mask. Do you want it? And keep in mind, I had already gotten, got a casting of the uh, movie mold H6 that I was framed for um, in my possession. I'm like, well, cool. I'll have two screen use pieces. Yeah, I'll buy it. So I bought it. I looked at the hair job I did on it from previous years. I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to have to change that. So when I decided to change it to the more accurate hair, I casted the entire thing and came out with the real casting, direct casting of the motherfucker that everybody knows and loves today. And so, yes, it does have direct lineage. Um, I did try enlarging that one. Still didn't work. 
I didn't like I didn't like the look, so I took the larger master, and I don't want to say retooled it. I just fixed fixed some of the shape and put some of the detail back in that it was lacking on the larger copy. Um, that Chad Morphus just got that Brandon Zachman wants that um, that even the guy who asked the question Adam Griffin he has one so. Um, but yeah, that's that's where my H8 comes from. I know it was a long story, but I felt like since it had never been told, it was a good time to tell the story. Do you still have that that hero? Nope, because that was one of the things I sold off along with that H6 screen use, and I really wish I I had it. Oh, you're a maniac. Dude, I'm telling you, there's a lot of things I did during that time at a reaction because I was so pissed off and so hurt that I wish I could go back and do over. Oh god, I want to shed tears. But I have the next best thing. I have the direct casting of it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you do. But there's just something about saying this was on camera. Like like even if you have like like I know Sean Clark has like a production H5 uh, from uh Revenge, but I don't think it ever saw camera use. But I was like it's just something different about saying this was on screen, you know. Yeah, and uh, the one that, and again, take this with a grain of salt because he didn't know that Michael Myers wasn't Jason. He kept calling him Jason. He didn't even know what the fuck he worked on. But um, he, we we watched Resurrection together when we were drinking beers and stuff, and he said that he believes his casting was from when um, they were doing the story when the head was chopped off and they pulled the mask off and see it was the paramedic. He said he thinks it's that mask. And I'm like, eh, I guess it could be, but more chance of not. I mean, there was, there was 15 of them used on the, on the film. Um, whether, Jesus, whether they were ever made to screen or not. I don't know. I mean, he's, he says it was a screen use that he got at the very end because he was in the, one of the upper upper crew members that worked busted his ass and did a lot of the reshoots and did a lot of extra extra work and that was one of the things that he got to take with him was a souvenir and that's and that's one of the things that he took. Did Brad LeRae even get to keep one of those? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Oh, okay. Yep. I'd be very disappointed if he didn't have one. I think he sold it off though, and um, he ended up getting his own signature series stamp from SSN. Um, but it is what it is. All right, I think we got a, a pretty a pretty good episode out of this. I think so. And this is a uh, again our season uh, closer for this, so uh, I'm not sure at the time of recording this what uh, when the episodes that we already have done, uh, in the catalog are going to be released. You know, before this, but hopefully everyone enjoyed the first season. Enjoyed. The episodes of the cutting room floor so far and i look forward to next season um especially now that i'll have up audio and video quality and you know i'm going to try to learn some some video editing so i can make the youtube versions you know more than just a skype recording you know add an intro and an outro and all that and thank chris for you know what he's helped me do on this and the the badass intro and outro he's put on the audio versions I've I've been uh, having a blast doing this, and it's been a great opportunity. 
You're very welcome, and uh, you know I, I've said it. Uh, I even said it last week, which we've already talked about. But you know, since we're on the phone, I'll just go ahead and tell you again that um, you know thanks for all the all the content that you provided the show to keep it rolling. Because without you doing that, um, first of all, I know that you were trying to get your podcast going. I think officially it's, you know, you've had some really cool interviews that you've been able to do since, since that popped up. And since I was trying to step away and do something different with my marketing business, you were able to keep things rolling. Um, and had you not been able to do that, we not been able to partner up, we probably wouldn't even be doing this episode and we probably wouldn't be doing any more episodes because the show would have died out by this point and you've helped keep it going. The numbers have stayed strong and uh, I, I can't thank you enough for all the work that you did. Uh, no, it's been nothing. And it's not like I, uh, you know, I've, you gifted me that amazing raining red proto out of it. So I've definitely, you know, gotten, gotten my kickbacks as well. And uh, I've done a so far one celebrity interview uh, count two or three if you count uh, uh, the NHA director and star that I did. That that was a blast. Um, I've got big aspirations and big plans for next season, so we'll see if we can make it happen. Yeah, and I I think as you continue to do it, um, you know it's all, it's only going to get better. And um, I look forward to to hosting more episodes uh, for you and with you. And um, again. Um, I got a message from him yesterday, but, you know, I guess he thought that we were going to record the season finale together, but I told him, no, it's the season premiere that when we come back in January, uh, but Brandon Zachman wanted to, uh, know when we were, what we were going to record. And I said, you know, I don't know, you know, we're going to be doing the season premiere, all three of us together. So that's really what I want to do. Um, we got roughly too much, too, too much, two months at this point that we're recording it. Um, we have two months of preparation that we can come up with pretty with pretty much anything that we want to kick off the new season. I've definitely got a couple of, of good ideas for for all of us to discuss because you know I, I'm very limited in my in my knowledge of the hobby. I rely heavily on you and Zachman for that. Um, so I think we can come up with something pretty cool. Yeah, I think so too. And I think you know um, you know you say that you have a, a a lack of knowledge, but you know you could be the voice of people who are much feeling the same way that they have a lack of knowledge. You could kind of fill in those gaps. You could, you could really, when you have Brandon and I on, you could ask us questions that maybe you've heard or that you want clarification on or, or whatever. It could be about anything, but there's a tons of different directions that we can take the premiere. But again, we got two months to figure it out. Absolutely, and uh, want to thank all the listeners because you know, especially uh, on my YouTube videos, you know, those have been more successful than I had anticipated, and all the people that have been sharing it and listening, that's all greatly appreciated as well. Yeah, just real quick uh, before we part, have you have you gone and got your blue chew yet? Got my what? Blue chew. I have not. What is that? You haven't listened to any of the episodes with uh, with the commercial for go get your dick real 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 hard oh yeah i forgot the brand name of that well there you go same active ingredients as viagra and, and, and cialis and it works twice as fast because it's chewable and not an oral pill so there's my little plug from blue chew for this week to close out so 
Well, I don't, I don't have those erectile dysfunction problems that you get in your 60s like you do. But, uh, I don't either. <laughs> but, but you know what? There, there, there may be a time or two that I wish I could last a little longer. And I wish I could uh, go a little extra longer or a few extra rounds. So it, you don't always have to have erectile dysfunction to appreciate the benefits of a rock-hard dick. <laughs> oh, man. That's amazing product placement. Yeah, so, you know, again, to close it out, if you want to get your dick real hard, go over to BlueChew.com. All you got to do for for your first shipment or your first hit, you know, it's just like drug dealers. We're, we're, we're pimping out drugs on this show, is the first hit is always free, and then you're going to come back for more because you're going to want that super hard dick time and time again. So the point is, all you got to do for your first free, it's free, your, your first hit, all you got to do is pay the $5 shipping and handling, and you can get uh, pre-approved and prescribed right online. No, in, no impersonal doctor visits, no crazy phar- pharmacist that you have to deal with at CVS. And they say, well, well, we got, uh, we got a prescription for a rock hard dick for Dylan Cloud, and you got 20 people behind you, and that's embarrassing. No, everything is done in a very discreet pa- package shipped directly to your door over at bluechew.com. Go over there, get, do yourself a favor, and get your dick hard. You know this 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 off season, and you know let us know. Uh, tag us on the Unleashed page, or even on social media. If, hashtag super hard dick. You know that will that will be the hashtag. You'll be happy, and so will he or she. Exactly. You know. Well, on that note, that's that's all I got. All right, same here. This has definitely been great, and I look forward to the future episodes we do. All right, stay hard. This is the Halloween Unleashed Podcast. For collectors, by collectors.